Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. I'm Morgan Rector, host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? This is the right show for you. It will test your endurance. The offenders profiled are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters, available wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... Money can cause people to act in ways that no one expects. On July 29, 1999, a man calmly walked into a building where he lost thousands of dollars and began shooting at complete strangers. A man who, when his rampage had started, already had three victims back home that had yet to be found. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Mark Oren Barton, born April 2, 1955, in Stockbridge, Georgia, moved to Germany with his parents at a young age due to his father's job in the U.S. Air Force. After spending most of his childhood stationed in Europe, the Barton family moved to Sumter, South Carolina, where Mark was later described by classmates as extremely intelligent, but emotionally distant to the point of isolation. By the time he was a teenager, Mark was abusing hallucinogenic drugs and, because of this, spent quite a few nights at the local hospital because of accidental overdoses. Once out of high school, Mark made his way to Clemson University and, later, to the University of South Carolina where he got caught committing a robbery to pay for his drug habit and was sent to a drug and psychiatric therapy. Despite all of this, Mark was able to graduate from the university with a degree in chemistry and made his way back to Atlanta where he met a woman named Deborah Spivey. And the two later married and, in 1988, welcomed their son, Matthew, into their lives. All the while, Mark continued his drug abuse. The couple soon found themselves relocating to Texas and later Arkansas for Matt's job as the president of a manufacturing company. But this move only seemed to exacerbate Mark's growing paranoia as he found himself consumed by the idea that Deborah was having an affair behind his back. 
He was controlling, and his strange behaviors soon trickled into the workplace, and, once fired in 1990, he tried to sabotage the company's data files, for which he was charged and made to serve a small stint behind bars before settling with the company. Now unemployed, Mark moved his family back to Georgia, where he got a new job in sales at a chemical company. While things seemed back on track in his professional world, his marriage to Deborah continued to sour, and now back in Georgia, he began an affair with a married woman he met at work named Lee Ann Lang. Mark and Deborah welcomed a second child, a girl named Michelle, in 1991, which in no way stopped or slowed down Mark's relationship with Lee Ann. An affair that at some point Deborah found out about but didn't bother to address. In June of 1993, Mark and Leanne took a trip to Charlotte, North Carolina, where they had dinner with a friend of hers, and Mark spent the evening gushing about how he had never loved anyone more than he loved Leanne, casually remarking how he would be free to marry her by October 1st of that year. And a few months later, Leanne ended her own marriage and moved in with her sister while waiting for Mark to make his next move. That September, Deborah Spivey went to spend Labor Day weekend with her mother, Eloise, in Alabama in a lakeside trailer. It was here that the women were mysteriously bludgeoned to death by an axe-like tool that, when called to the scene, police could not locate. Of course, Mark became a prime suspect, because, as we learned, the husband always is. And just an hour after his wife's funeral, police showed up to his home to look for any evidence of his involvement. While they searched, Mark took the opportunity to play a little game of cat and mouse with the investigators, claiming that, despite being a chemist by trade, he didn't know what that strange substance was that they were spraying around the house. When they told him that it was luminol, he said, I had seen it on one episode of Columbo. Regardless of how well he did or didn't know his chemicals, the luminol soon got a hit on his car's ignition switch and seatbelt. When asked why it was there, Mark had no explanation, but did challenge the police, saying, If there is a ton of blood in my car, why aren't you arresting me? To which they had to admit that it wasn't enough blood to garner an arrest. He would later make a trip to Alabama to offer an explanation for the blood, claiming that he cut his finger to the bone the summer before his wife's murder, but refused to give any samples for a DNA test or sit for a lie detector test. Now, if the blood wasn't enough to earn your suspicion, let me offer a bit of information that might change your mind. Before his wife's death, Mark Barton took out a life insurance policy on Deborah, and while not totally strange, he originally requested a $1 million policy, but couldn't afford the premiums and settled for a $600,000 one, and telling the insurer that it was his wife's idea and the product of her, quote, extreme sense of self-worth. Unfortunately, despite their strong feelings that he was responsible for the deaths, police didn't have enough to charge Mark, and with no witnesses, and only inconclusive forensic evidence that they couldn't retest because Mark claimed he spilled a drink on it, he was left to walk free. Within a week of Deborah's death, Leanne was spending the night at the house with Mark and his kids. A month later, her divorce was finalized. Six months later, the pair moved in together in Morrow, Georgia, where no one knew about Deborah and her mother. And in 1995, the pair finally married. 
This new marriage did little to help his paranoia, and as his mental health began to deteriorate rapidly, Leanne started leaving the house for days at a time, and in the years before they got married, two-and-a-half-year-old Michelle told a daycare worker that her father was sexually molesting her. He was, of course, evaluated after this claim, and the psychologist determined that, while he believed he, quote, certainly was capable of homicide, there was little they could do to prove that Michelle's claims were real. And because their mother was already gone, they needed a more concrete case to get the children out of his custody. While all of this was happening, Mark started a fight with the insurance company to collect the $600,000. Because he was considered a suspect early on in the investigation, the insurance company was reluctant to distribute the entire sum of the policy, but eventually rewarded him with $450,000 in 1997 with the stipulation that $150,000 of it go to a trust for Michelle and Matthew. With his sudden windfall, Mark dove headfirst into the risky business of day trading and soon made it his full-time job winning big on some days and losing more money than some make in a year on others. Soon, the losing was happening way more than the winning, and according to Momentum Securities, where he had been trading, in June of 1999, had lost about $105,000 on volatile internet stocks, with a total loss of about $300,000 over the past year. Unable to make the margin call and after a $50,000 bounce check, Mark Barton was denied trading, was denied trading privileges with the company. Feeling as though his perfect life was crumbling down around him, Mark Oren Barton, a man nicknamed The Rocket due to his explosive nature, took off one last time. On July 29, 1999, at 2.56 p.m., 911 dispatchers got a call saying that there was a man shooting people in an Atlanta office building. A second call came in at 2.58 p.m., saying that at least four people were already dead at Momentum Securities. Police arrived just minutes later, and as they entered the building, found a trail of blood leading them around the third-floor hallway. Backup was called, and officers, who had no clue who the shooter was, or if he was acting alone, started to canvass the building, stepping over the bodies of victims as they went. As they started to find Momentum employees huddled in small rooms and under their desks, one of the women shouted that Mark Barton shot us. As they continued their work inside the building, an officer on a motorcycle started to circle the building and surrounding areas in hopes of heading off the shooter as he exited. That's when he heard gunshots ring out at another office building nearby. In the time between the last gunshot at Momentum and the police officer's arrival, Mark Barton had walked to a nearby Alltech Investment Group, another company with which he lost thousands, and killed an additional five people, leaving the scene before police could go from one building to the next. According to witness statements, the manager and his secretary recognized Mark as he walked into the offices just after 3 p.m., they greeted him by name, and he commiserated with them over the Dow's nearly 200-point slide with no clue that underneath his clothes were two loaded handguns. In a flash, five shots rang out from a meeting room, and the manager and assistant were both on the floor seriously injured. As Mark walked onto the main trading floor, he pointed the gun at a woman named Nell Jones and missed her forehead by inches. 
as he left the building, she heard him utter the words, I hope this won't ruin your trading day. By 3.15 p.m., Mark Barton was nowhere to be found, and in his wake were the bodies of Alan Charles Tenenbaum, Dean Delawalla, Joseph J. Desert, Yamsid Havash, and Vadwade Muralidhara of Alltech Investment Groups, and Edward Quinn, Kevin Dial, Russell J. Brown, and Scott Webb of Momentum Securities. As ambulances flooded the scene and seasoned paramedics tended to the wounded, they said they had never seen carnage like this in even some of the roughest neighborhoods, let alone the affluent Buckhead area. Now, while all of this was happening, 20 miles south of downtown Atlanta, Miles South, the manager of the Bristol Green Apartment Complex, considered his next move on a tenant living in Building 1300. The rent was late, and he wondered what was up, so he called over to the Henry County Police at 3.23 p.m. and let the officer into the quiet apartment. When he did, the officer found the bodies of 27-year-old Lee Ann Vandiver Barton and both 11-year-old Matthew and 7-year-old Michelle. As the investigation into this discovery began, a note left by Mark Barton painted a pretty clear timeline of his events. On July 27, 1999, Mark woke early in the morning and bludgeoned Leanne to death as she slept and stuffed her body into the bedroom closet so his children would not see. Over the course of the next morning and afternoon, Mark spent time with his two children before using a hammer to beat them both and forcing them into a full bathtub to ensure their deaths. He then cleaned up the mess, put the kids back into bed, tucked them in, and placed a video game on Matthew's body and a stuffed animal on Michelle's. He then sat at the computer and typed up a note addressed to whom it may concern and dated it for Thursday, July 29th at 6.38 a.m. It read, I killed Leanne because she was one of the main reasons for my demise. I know that Jehovah will take care of all of them in the next life. Please know that I love Leanne, Matthew, and Michelle with all my heart. If Jehovah's willing, I would like to see them all again in the resurrection to have a second chance. I don't plan to live very much longer, just long enough to kill as many of the people that greedily sought my destruction. It also went on to note the similarities between these deaths and the deaths of Deborah and her mother, but continued to deny his involvement. Realizing that, in addition to the nine strangers he killed, this brought his total up to twelve, the manhunt for Mark Barton intensified. At around 7.40 p.m., security officers at the Town Center Mall found Mark's empty van at about the same time that a young woman, who was sitting in her car after a shopping trip, was accosted by an armed man instructing her not to scream or move, hoping to secure a hostage for his escape. She ran off, and thankfully, Mark chose not to shoot, and she called the police. A chase ensued and came to an end at a gas station in Ackworth, where Mark Barton shot himself as police attempted to apprehend him. It was 7.55 p.m. When all of the dust settled on Mark's rampage, those who knew Leanne said that they were unsurprised that she was his first victim. According to them, Leanne knew her life was in danger, but loved Matthew and Michelle too much to abandon them. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on July 30th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. 
If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.